Expansion Records celebrates its 35th anniversary year this year as the UK's premier soul label for brand new music and reissues. Expansion artist alumni include Leon Ware, Howard Hewitt, Kashif, Gary Taylor, Kenny Burke, Mysa, Frank McComb, Stephanie Mills and Angela Bofill. In 2008, Expansion Records joined forces with Jazz FM for joint venture label Jazz FM Records, creating a series of compilations including The Sound of Jazz FM, The Sound of Smooth Jazz and Funky Sensation. Both Ralph T and Richard Serling, also a founding member of Expansion Records, run the popular luxury soul weekenders in Blackpool, which are constantly sold out, and share their music knowledge with shows on solar radio, Jazz FM, and contribute to Blues and Soul magazine. Ralph is also author of Soul Music Who's Who. In a recent interview with smooth-jazz.de in Germany, Ralph said, as a label, I believe we are at least as active, if not more active, than the majors. Ralph, welcome to the show. Only someone who has your level of experience can boldly make that pronouncement. Where did it all begin? I didn't come from a musical family where we had a load of records, but there were records in the house that I did play and, you know, been given to my parents and, you know, along the way that I used to play it and enjoy. And then quite simply, it was listening to the radio. I used to listen to, you know, Radio 1, as I recall, an early radio station I used to listen to. And at the time when I was about, I suppose, I don't know, 12, 13, something like that, I started to realise I liked, you know, a lot of the, what I was hearing and started pursuing it out beyond what we had in the house. Um, so not what necessarily soul music. At that age, at 13, what were you hearing on radio? Well, it was pop one? music, I guess. It was, pop, it was pop music. But, you know, the sort of artists I'd mention as, as liking straight off were people like, I don't know, Elton John, you know, the Carpenters, you know, but equally Diana Ross, you know, the Starlistics, you know, those, those kind of acts that were having hits in the charts on national mainstream radio. I used to listen to the radio. Um, and then got, got a record player, and we had a, a local record shop where I used to go to, and, uh, you know, oh, Elton John's got a new album. And then I, I knew I liked kind of orchestral music. Like music. I love strings. You know, I absolutely love strings. So I, I like sort of orchestral-type rock. I'd buy, a, you know, a Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon, or Tangerine Dream. And, you know, and that was... So it wasn't strictly sold to begin with. It was just things that were around at the time, across different genres. The connection, I guess, being the strings and then ultimately soulful voices. So, if that, you know, if that, if that gives, um, gives you an idea. Absolutely. So at 13, what were you like at school? Were you a particularly bright student or were you non-academic and found something in, in, in music that was just yours to consume? Uh, a little nerdish, I think, at, at school. You know, I wasn't one of the, you know, the popular ones, so to speak. Kept myself to myself. Um... Didn't really have a game plan. I wasn't thinking, do you know what? When I grow up, I want to do this. I didn't really know what what I wanted to do. And each of the different classes I was in, I mean, I wasn't too bad. I mean, I got my O-levels. You know, I was able to study and, you know, making it, make getting qualifications important. But with regard to what I wanted to do with them thereafter, I really had no idea. And, and the thought of going to university, that really scared me. I'm thinking... Well, what subject am I going to do? Because normally, if you go to university, you've got an idea of what you want to do, and then you go and take the the uh, the courses to kind of match those 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 um, ideas. Um, your, your father was a journalist, though. Thankfully, so when I got nothing, nothing of that um, mindset was uh, 
weaving its way into you, thinking that you want to write or follow your father? Not really. I mean, the whole journalism thing started by accident. Um, my dad really didn't want me to DJ. I mean, DJing was something I started really early. Like I'm talking about 14, 15 at school. And, you know, both my parents were like, you're not going to, you know, they didn't really feel that was something they were comfortable me pursuing, certainly on its own. Um, and my dad used to work for a, um, a photo agency up in Fleet Street where all, all the newspapers were and all that. And he got me a part-time job there and a holiday job. So I was around kind of um, other journalists and the whole sort of print media side of things. And also, incidentally, the, the, the technology that was coming along, you know, the, the golf ball typewriters, for example, that came I up were extremely <laughs> you know, and the fact that you could, um, those, those early photocopying machines, you know, where you could put a, a piece of A4 onto a, onto a, a, print, onto a, a printer press a button and a piece of paper would come out on A4 that looked exactly the same. Because before that, those early printers were, they were on some sort of roll, weren't they? The, the paper was on some sort of roll that used to splice off. So you and what I'm it... trying to say is it, it, it sort of gave me the idea to write something that I could easily, easily copy and then, and then send out to people. Because when I was at school, one thing that came along when I was at school was the Saturday Night Fever movie soundtrack, Okay. And that kind of changed everything because it suddenly made me a little bit cool as well because I, I was really into those kind of tr tracks, as were all the other people in my school. Um, and I we didn't have a, you know, it was coming up to the years where we'd, we'd have a six-form disco. They didn't have a DJ. So I think, well, hold on a minute, I can do that. And there's this guy I met, well, I knew early doors at school. We didn't really start speaking to him until the sixth form. We'd equally kind of discovered this music. And we started DJing together. Um, and for, the, for a couple of years, you know, we, we were playing music, you know, every couple of weeks, somewhere or another, either in school. Ultimately, we were able to move out of school and play outside. But we, 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 we had some people who followed us, you know, all young people, all our age, who ultimately ended up in, uni I was the only one who didn't go to university, by the way. <laughs> they all ended up in university. And I was like, oh, now what am I going to do? So I started off by communicating with them, by keeping them updated with all the new releases, because I was in London still. They were in, you know, Exeter University, Southampton, where, wherever, Oxford even, one of my good friends went to, still interested in the music. And so I would um, write to them pretty much every week with an update of what had just come into the, the latest, uh, you know, what the latest imports were. They'd just come into the, you know, big import shops in London, like Groove Records, City Sounds, Bluebird, those kind of shops. So your newsletter So that's how the kind of the writing started. It was a newsletter, exactly. It, it was just a newsletter that I would do. And I, actually, I started radio, loosely speaking, as well at that point, because one of my friends, the, the guy I started DJing with, his name is Cliff Rennie, and we used to DJs Ralph and Rennie, right? He went to Exeter, and uh, there's a, there was a radio station on campus called Radio Glen, as I recall, and he used to do a weekly show on that. But he used to ask me to do a little contribution, like because he had you know a, quite a lot of records, but it, because I was the closest to all the new things coming out, I would do a little you know, 20 minute segment, which I used to record on cassettes and I'd send down and that would go out on Radio Glen. So that was my first ever outlook on, 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 on radio. And, and then I remember going down to Exeter University and DJing with my friend Clifford, again, as Ralph and Rennie, you know, him as a, as a student there at the university and me, just as an, old, an old friend who, who drove up from London. Um, and, and even from there, there was, there was a guy who came to the gig, his name was Chris Dennis. And he had a club in Exeter called Boxes, which today is my, still my favourite ever clubs. 
And um, he said, "Oh, well, I, I really enjoyed what you did. You know, how about you come and come and DJ? You know, at my club in in in, in Exeter called Boxes. So that was kind of a move then to doing proper clubs. How old were you when you were DJing in Exeter at the university and on the you know the radio student um, radio? Probably, you know what? I'm, you know, part of me is thinking I must have been eighteen because we certainly had a beer. So I must have been 18, mustn't I? So you're going against Which your Which would have been wishes. then, I'm saying, you know, 78 around, 1978. Now you are proving that you were going against your parents' wishes and DJing. How did that go down? They never really liked, they never really liked it, to be honest with you. And there was still that, you know, we needed to get, get a, you know, a, they wanted me to you know, maybe work in a bank or something that had a career and longevity. Um, but the thing is about the whole Saturday Night Fever thing, suddenly there was demand for DJs playing that kind of music. And at least I could make some money doing that as, as, as a stopgap. And, and then that, my little newsletter translated into my little fanzine called Groove Weekly. And that really came about because I used to, rather than just go into a record shop and browse um, what was in the racks, I used to ask behind the counter what's coming out, what's due in next week. You know, I was asking them loads of information. And in Groove Records, the shop in Soho, the, the, the guy who was working at the time, Chris Palmer, oh, and his brother, Tim, said, well, what, you know, what do you want all this information for? So I said, well, I do this little, this little fanzine. Well, can we see it? And I said, yeah. So I brought a copy in, and they said, oh, we'd like to stock it in the shop. Really? So they then stocked my little fanzine in the shop, and then word got out about that. And then the other, the other shop started stocking it as well. Because actually, if I say so myself, it was more upfront than Blues and Soul were. Um, because Blues and Soul was still written primarily in the United States. All the content was coming from America with a very American slant on, on what the new releases were. And the UK releases were, and the UK taste was, was, was different. So I had that kind of advantage. First of all, I was weekly, and what I was writing about, they could only catch up with about a month later. You know, so suddenly, uh, and what I was writing about, it, the shops were getting sales off the back of it. So, you know, I was stocked in Groove Records, Bluebird Records, you know, City Sounds and High Hoban, um, a couple of the others escaped, the names escaped me at the moment. And they were starting, oh, Record Chat, that was another one. Uh, and they started advertising. So as they were advertising, actually paying for the ads, the whole magazine grew. Um, and eventually that and DJing became, became a full-time job. Your first choice is the three degrees. When will I see you again? Tell us the story behind this choice. Yes. Well, the reason I, I'm starting with this record is that it takes me back to first hearing a soul record. I thought, oh, oh my goodness, you know, this is really something different. This is something special that I really, really like. And as I was saying earlier, it was about, you know, listening to Radio One, Tony Blackburn in particular, his show, and he used to love that record as well. He used to play it day after day after day, and I'm thinking. You know, yes, I love, you know, the Carpenters and, you know, and, and another M.O.R. kind of type music. But that, you know, the, it, it was my start of my love with the sound of Philadelphia. My, my opening is the first record I heard on Philadelphia International Records. I never even heard of Lady before. Um, and that was the, the first record. I thought, you know what? I, I'm a soul. I, re, I, I realise now how much I like soul music with that record.
you expand on what it is about soul music other than the strings that drew you into the genre and was to propel your career? Um, which, you know, the music, you know, as I would say, that kind of changed my life, saved my life, you know, in a lot of ways, because uh, when it came to the point when I had to make decisions on what I was going to do, I really had no idea. But suddenly, oh, I could DJ, oh, I could write about it. It gave me a whole new, you know, world of opportunities of, of things to do with that with that music. But to answer your question, I mean, yes, again, it's the strings. Yes, it's against the, the, those rhythms. You know, I will confess, I'm not the biggest lyric man. You know, I'm not technically, you know, uh, drawn to great lyrics. And I'm not saying that record had great lyrics. It's just, a, a, you know, a fine, you know, a nice lyric that worked, worked well. Um, voices are important to me. It was like, you know, Sheila Ferguson on that record. And I knew I liked the voice, not necessarily because, you know, what, what the words were, <laughs> but just the sound of the voice as, as an additional instrument, if you like. Uh, and I particularly like, you know, those kind of black, kind of gospel-y type, voices and you know put those voices with with, those, with that big landscape of of, of, of music I'm talking organic strings you know it's a different subject when you come to what happened later in life with the whole programming but at that time when the music was so organic those live live musicians live playing a fantastic voice you know a strong melody I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm attracted to those as well I like hooks you know songs that have, have, have memorable hooks you were writing for Blues and Soul now, and what was that whole experience like? Were you in your element? Um, I was. The only difference was um, I now wasn't my own boss anymore. And, uh, you know, I'd get tasked with doing particular interviews. I mean, I love doing interviews, by the way. Um, it's the first time I'd... No, actually, I'd done some with my own magazine. In fact, I even, Herbie Han- I even interviewed Herbie Hancock as, as one of the biggest artists at the time I was doing my fanzine. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I did enjoy the experience. Um, but niggling away was like, it's, it's not my own thing. I'm still working with someone else. I'm working in the genre that I want to, to, to write in. I was, in. I was enjoying it. What happened next was that Morgan Khan came along from, um, he had a record label, Street Sounds, at the time. And he was someone, he used to advertise in My Little my little Groove Weekly. He used to say half a page, street wave, you know, records um, advert in, in my fanzine. And he would say to me, he said, well, you know, we missed your Groove Weekly. You know, it's not the same, you being at Blues and Soul. They said, how would you feel if I was to, you know, come up with the funding for you to run your own magazine again? I was, and I thought, you know, he can't, he can't really be serious. He, he was, you know, when I had several meetings with him, he decided that he wanted to launch his own magazine that I would be the editor of, that he would fund, and he offered me the job. So I did have that painful um, day when I had to go into Blues and Soul and tell them that, you know, thank you ever so much for the opportunity you've given me here. I've enjoyed working here, but, you know, I've been given this other opportunity, and um, I, I think I'm going to take it. And to be fair to them, they, they were so kind. I wouldn't say they were happy about it, but they didn't give me a, a big deal. You know, they didn't really treat me badly over it. Um, but I did then jump ship. I went to work for, for Morgan Khan Street Scene magazine, which was launched by with a, with a TV advertising campaign fronted by Tony Blackburn, believe oh, it or word. not. That's incredible. Um, and we did launch parties all around the country. And, we did, and, and Morgan at the time had this group that he himself was in called Masquerade. He actually put himself in his own group. And uh, we toured the whole of the UK 
with him in Masquerade, me launching the magazine. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it was like a 36 page, um, full color, you know, mag- magazine. But the target was he, he, he needed to sell about 40,000 of these a week. And, uh, he pressed, he printed up the first few editions, a hundred thousand. Um, but what failed us ultimately was the distribution. We, we never quite, we never got the distribution right. So I did it for a year. But ultimately, it couldn't sustain itself because we couldn't quite get the balance right between, you know, the number of magazines we printed and getting them to the places where enough people would buy them. The advantage of all the magazines that I'd worked for, you know, my own included, and then Blues and Soul on the Street scene, was that all the record companies knew who I was, you know, and they all, you know, they all knew I'd, you know, with, with as far as their soul content was concerned. They were going to get coverage. You know, I was going to interview their artists. I was going to, I was going to, you know, give exposure to the, the, these kind of artists. I mean, even going back to, well, I'm digressing a little bit, but even going back to my Groove Weekly, when when CBS signed Wham, who I know are not strictly a, a soul group, um, although of course you know George Michael ultimately became recognised for, for his, his voice, but at the time when Wham started around with with Wham Rap, um, CBS couldn't get any coverage, any coverage on them at all. And Lorraine Trent, who worked at Sony or CBS as it was then, asked me, "So, can you just? We can't get any press at all on Wham. Can you? Can you help me? Can you do something?" And I listened to the record, and Wham rap really wasn't strictly me at all. But I was thinking, you know, well, I, could, I, I didn't even. I said I can't interview them, or I don't really want to do a review. But what I can do is like a little, maybe a competition. Have you got some merchandise, some T-shirts, anything like that? I could do like a half-page introducing Wham. Uh, Winner's T-shirt, white label of of, uh, <laughs> of Wham Rap, um, and uh, so she said, "Would you do that?" I said, "Yeah." So I did that, and she was so grateful to the point that one day when I was working in Groove Records, she brought Wham into the shop. She brought George and Andy into the shop to in to meet me, so they they could personally thank me. Before we start talking about the Arista Record days, I want to go on to your second choice. Uh, which is Waldo Roderick de Hammersmith and the story about why you chose this particular one. It comes from the first soul album I ever bought, which was City of Angels by The Miracles. And the reason I bought that album was because I discovered Soul Spectrum on Capital Radio, which is hosted by Greg Edwards. So we've gone from, say, my first choice, Three Degrees, at a time I was listening to pop radio, to then realising there was this, uh, this kind of subworld of music that wasn't entering the charts, but there was a scene for it that was being, you know, facilitated by what what you know, shows like well, it was only really Greg on um, on um, Capital and, and Robbie Vincent on Radio London. So I was suddenly discovering there was a whole world of, of soul music that I wasn't hearing on pop radio that I was really liking new artists, you know, new tracks, albums were coming out. So I picked this one. Well, there's a number of connections with this record. So it's the first record I bought. And a memory of that, by the way, was I bought it in, in um, WH Smith's in Rittmansworth. And the first person I bumped into walking out was a, a school friend's mum who knew me very well. And the, the thing she said to me always sticks in my mind was, more records? You're buying more records? You know, 
it was my first soul record. Very first. I hadn't even got a soul collection at that point, you know. But I'd had all my Elton Johns and my Carpenters and my Pink Floyds and all that. And she was astonished I'd want even more records. And this is my first. I bought it was um, A, because I say I've discovered Soul Spectrum and Greg Edwards had um, the Miracles as guests on his show. So that was fascinating. And here is my first interview with the Soul Group was with, um, you know, the Miracles. But at the time, I just lost Smokey Robinson, but had gained Billy Griffin. And ultimately, you know, Billy Griffin was someone who then went on to do, you know, Hold Me Tighter in the Rain. And um, eventually signed to expansion, and I put his own solo album out. And the collection, by the way, the only collection of all his tra- best of Billy Griffin is only available on expansion. So that's why I've chosen this track. It's Billy Griffin. Let's pick up. You're about to tell us about your Arista Record days, which, um, for full disclosure, is where Ralph and I first met back in what 1988. About that, yeah. 88, yeah. Maybe the end of '87, but yeah, '88. You know, absolutely. You know, I think I've done my bit with the with the with the journalism for that time anyway. And I wanted to, I you know, I really wanted to work for a record label. You know, I really fancy the idea of working for one of those, you know, big record companies. Um, I, you know, I'd always say that Philly International was my favourite label ultimately. You know, because I love that Philly sound. But they weren't an entity in the UK. They were, they were a label of Sony, but they weren't a company of Sony. And then when I look at Arista. You know, with what Clive... Well, Clive Davis, of course, was the guy who brought Philadelphia International into Sony in the first place. And there he is now at Arista with Aretha Franklin and Dionne Warwick, Patrice Russian, Whitney Houston, you know, Kenny G, all these kind of actors who I, who I love. 
And um, my connection with Arister, apart from, you know, they, they, they knew me and I wrote about their artists, was the fact that when I was at Blues and Soul, Arista had done a, a series of EPs with Arista called Arista Funksters. They were four-track EPs that were put together by a DJ by the name of Chris Brown, who's one of the Soul Mafia DJs from back in the day. Um, and they sold quite well. It was a collaboration, magazine and Arista. And I said to them, it was Jeff Gilbert, I said, look, you know, when I was at Blues and Soul, we, we did these collaborations. You've still got all these great records that people want to buy again, but you can't get, you know, how about I, I start doing a series of reissues and, and they, they were up, they were up for the idea. And uh, the first record I reissued was actually Philly Simon, you know how to love me. Wow. And it charted and everyone went berserk. At Arista, I mean, I'm talking about the lower end of the hundred. I'm not talking about, you know, top 40 or anything like that. But you but it went in the market. Yeah. And they were like, what have you done? What have you done? You know? um, because, you know, they were spending all this money on acts that were really struggling to get any any attention at all at the time. And there I just put an old reissue out and suddenly it's, you know, it's doing well. So what else you got? What else you got? <laughs> so I ended up working on pull up by, uh, I remember Breakwater, uh, as you're saying, Angela, Angela Bofill, um, Kashif, Bobby Womack, Don Blackman. You know, I was going through their catalogue, putting, putting various projects out. And I was doing all—I was doing it all myself, as you might remember. I had my little desk in the corner, and uh, I'd do the mail-outs to all the DJs, um, and you know, they, they were happy with my little thing in the corner there. But they didn't have anyone doing um, club promotions, if you recall. I do. They had—they yeah. used to bring people in. They used to bring people in, and then they'd do the mail-out, and then they'd go. You know, they weren't employees of, of the company. There was no club promotions department. So I remember when Whitney Houston's second album dropped, I remember Clive Davis coming over uh, and presenting the album at, at, at Arista. And uh, I remember we all saw the video. I don't know if you recall this. You might have been in that same um, uh, meeting when they showed the video of I Want to Dance with Somebody. Yes. But before anyone had seen it, they previewed it. They brought a video of it and they showed it in the boardroom and everyone got to see it. And um, I remember saying to them, who's going who's gonna to do the promo on this? And they said, oh, we haven't, we haven't decided yet. They said, would you like to do it? And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> so I ended up getting to do the, um, you know, the club promo on I Want to Dance with Somebody. And it was number one for five weeks. And they all thought I was a genius. Um, and they wouldn't employ me because they were always saying about the headcount. We can only employ so many people at any particular time, which is, I guess is why they didn't have a full-time club promotion department in the first place. They said we can do it, but we're going to have to do it on a um, like a you know a freelance freelance basis, and you know you can charge you can charge us your fee per record. But they gave me every record, and Deanne, it was an astonishing time for me because well I bought my first BMW, put it like that off the back of it because <laughs> I was doing so well at, at them, and they were so delighted, and I, and I was working with all, all my favourite artists, you know, and that's where for example I would meet Kashif, you know, and Kashif had an album out. You know, and Patrice Russian with the Watch Out album, and I even got involved with doing remixes. I started getting involved in, in that side of things as well. And uh, they even let me um, sign a track. They said, well, look, if you've got anything we think, you know, anything you want to sign, or they, they offered me that opportunity, which I took up, by the way. And the record I did sign, it only ended up being the one in the end for reasons I'll, 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 I'll tell you. 
the record I signed was Sharon D. Clark, Dance Your Way Out the Door. Um, and that came from my association with Ian Levine, who I'd got to know through. He was a, a writer on one of my magazines. When I was doing the street scene, he was a, um, a contributor. He used to do a, a high-energy music column in the magazine. And Damon Rochefort, who co-wrote the track with um, um, Ian, who was the assistant editor of the street scene with me, who'd been a co-writer at Blues and Soul with me, and was now in, in, the, in the music world. Um, they'd made this record. And uh, Tony Blackburn loved it. It was playing it every day because it came out on an import first. I don't know if you remember. It was pressed up in um, on this Miami label and came no, in I this, don't recall. this limited edition import. Tony Blackburn was playing it all the time. And um, I just said to the guys at Arista, I said, well, yeah, we, we should put this out. And, and, they, and they did it. We did the deal. I, 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 um, I put it out. The week before it came out, Arista fired its sales team. They used to have a, their own sales team in the basement. I remember that big basement where they used to store all all the all the beverages, all the bars. Yep. Do you remember it? Yep. Every floor, every office had its own mini bar with as much wine and beer as you could drink. And 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 in the basement there was the post room, all the booze, and there was the sales team in a kind of adjoining office. And they went and fired them, so it didn't get that lift. <laughs> I didn't get those placements that you used to do around all the shops the week that it needed it. So it went into the charts really low, and then and then. Um, um, fell out the charts, and that 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 was the end of that was the end of that. Ian Levine came to me shortly after, still trying to get me to put another of his records out, which was a Mary Wilson record. He recorded with Mary Wilson of the Supremes this record called "Don't Get Mad, Get Even," which she'd written as a you know after reading Diana Ross's book, where you know she was mad at what Diana had written in the book. So she and Ian had written this song, you know, sort of get back at her, don't get mad, get even, right? And he said, oh, this is a smash. It needs to be on Arista. Uh, and he's on a proper label because he had his own uh, nightmare record label at the time. Yep. And I said, oh, I can't, I, can't you know, I, I really can't do that. And also, you know, I, things were changing at Arista and uh, they were merging with RCA under... BMG, you know, the Berkelsmann yes, Group. Those, those, these labels have been bought up by this German entity. And what I was doing, and what a lot of what was happening at Arista was being incorporated into RCA, because the actual boss of it was based at RCA, not at Arista. Um, and so, you know, my, my, my position was slowly being phased out. I mean, not before, by the way, I got the chance to work with Lisa Stansfield. I mean, I was there the whole Lisa Stansfield journey from her and big you know, things. being with Blue Zone yeah. at a time making music that wasn't a million miles from what, what uh, Swing Out Sister were doing, you know. So then they, they're they making their own record, that track called Big Thing, which I actually insisted they put out as a promo. But I remember Jazz Summers, who was managing, you know, the band at the time, he was kind of not so happy that, you know, I was, I was responding to the interest in Big Thing and feeding that rather than focusing on one of these, you know, expensive... Um, Blues, other blue zone tracks they had. So um, anyway, so yes, I got to meet and got to know Lisa through all of that. Um, but ultimately, there was the merge between the two companies, and uh, my job basically came to an end there. I discovered Greg Edwards and Soul Spectrum on Capital Radio myself, but through being at school and talking to friends there about my love of soul music, uh, a school friend said to me, well, have you ever listened to Robbie Vincent on a, on a Saturday lunchtime on Radio London? Which I hadn't. So it was him who pointed me in the direction of Robbie, even though 
I was aware that Robbie did a phone-in show on Radio London during the week. It was like a late-night phone-in show from about 10 o'clock at night to 1 in the morning. And in the first half an hour, he always used to play music. But in those days, to begin with, it wasn't strictly soul music. In fact, I can tell you that I bought a Kraftwerk album after hearing it on Robbie Vincent's phone-in show, which was the Autobahn album. So that's kind of where my taste was still developing. They weren't fully settled at that, at that point. And, um, and my friend Cliff was saying, no, no, you've got to listen to the Saturday show. And I just remember Pick Up The Pieces being one of the first tracks that he played, thinking, you know, I, I really, 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 you know, I really like this. And uh, it was the first instrumental that I liked. You know, I realised that I was getting into what at the time was called kind of soulful jazz. It wasn't even called jazz funk in those days, but it was kind of those, the more instrumental side of the music. I was starting to to become interested in that. And, and this was the first record of its type.
leaving Arista, I went to work with Ian Levine because he had a small label and uh, he needed somebody to help him run it. And even though the music wasn't necessarily to my taste, I liked the idea of, um, you know, being in, you know, working for a small label and finding out how, how it all works. I mean, the decision was not one easily made because, um, as I said, Ian was not the easiest character in the world to, to, to deal with. And um, his reputation, even though he had hit records, um, I was thinking, what am I doing? What am I doing? In fact, when I did decide to go and work with Ian, James Hamilton wrote in Record Mirror, Ralph T goes and blows his credibility. Oh, dear. Um, as a soul guy, because Ian was doing a lot of um, high energy and pop stuff. This was on Nightmare um, Records, wasn't it? And I did say to him that, you know, it was it was it was not it was Nightmare Records at the time. That that's what he was doing. But I was interested in the fact that he was also recording some of the old Detroit, you know, Motown artists like you know, Kim Weston, for example, and making quite good records. And um, you know, Ian, as you know, he'd been working with these pop bands like Take That, and had actually done very well for himself mm. with High Energy to begin with, selling seven million copies of Evelyn Thomas, you know, High Energy, and then producing three hits or take that. So he had a bit of money in the bank and his passion was really Motown. And I could see that he was starting to engage more with those Motown artists that hadn't gone to LA. They were the ones still in Detroit who hadn't moved on since Motown left um, Detroit. So I was quite interested in that. And then of course he started Motor City Records, Mm -hmm. which was only for those artists who had once been on Motown. And that's when it got really interesting. Um, and he started to make a lot of nice records, which I was very pleased to be involved with, right from dealing with the artists at the start, doing their artist contracts, through to just, just dealing with the business affairs side of what he was doing. I mean, he, he, you know, it wasn't a great success as, as an entity, but I did learn a lot from it. And it was because I learned um, what I did that I had the grounding to then do what I did and still do to this day with expansion. He used to, Ian used to throw some fantastic parties, <laughs> I remember, <laughs> at his house in yeah. Ealing at the time. They were just fantastic. Well, he had a, he had a big house. Yeah. He bought from all his you know, proceeds from his records. Yeah, and he had, a, he had a, it was almost like the Ewing barbecue. Remember Dallas always yes. had the Ewing barbecue <laughs> Exactly. <once. laughs> when he had uh, all, all, all his friends around. I mean, Simon Cowell, I remember, used to come. I don't know if you recall. But he had all all music industry types, you know, come to his house. We'd all be around the uh, the swimming pool. In fact, I think even Simon Cowell got thrown into the pool one year. <laughs> they had this real love hate relationship. Yeah, because they were both making hits with kind of high energy style music. But Ian used to call his the credible stuff, the proper soulful vocals, and he used to blame Simon of using you know, <laughs> not fine vocalists, but but you know, really sort of tacky kind of song. So, they didn't like what each other was, you know, certainly Ian didn't like what Simon was doing very much, although Simon was in those days in having success. I, I remember those days very well because I too worked for Ian. I remember Chuck Jackson. I got that track played on Radio 1, which was impressive at the time. I worked with Martha Reeves through him. You know, you know I love Ian. He's got such a great heart. 
and the best intentions. And I, those parties were just something that I loved. And I was always laughing. I was always laughing with you. I was always laughing with Ian. Mm. <laughs> so they, they were they were fun times. And, you know, it was great working with those artists. I remember the Chuck Jackson record you just mentioned. I mean, I, I remember hearing that as a demo before Chuck Jackson even sung it and thinking, oh, this is one of the really, really good ones. And uh, what was it called? I can't I remember the name of it. Do you let remember? me mix it with him because some of Ian's records I thought either went on too long or there was something that was in the record that kind of spoilt it being to what I really liked, you know, and I thought that my, my soul people would like. So he let me sit in with him. We used to go to Scratch Studios in Chertsey, you know, big old fashioned 24 track, huge studio. Um, that belonged to Nigel Wright, you know, who eventually went on to be music director on Pop Idol and Early Doors of X Factor. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'd sit with Ian and we, we mixed the Chuck Jackson and it was one of the ones that the soul world picked up on. <clears throat> and from that point, I would sit in, not on every record, but there were certain records that came along that I would be on board with. And I've got the full credit on the sleeve and on the label as, as co-mixing. You know, the other ones being off the top of my head, um, Johnny Bristol, Man Up in the Sky. And uh, the one that ultimately became a hit, because I made it hit, but on another label, was Francis Nero, Footsteps Following Me. Let's go on to track four, Never Stop Loving Me by Kenny Burke. Now, am I right in recalling that Kenny sang at your 50th birthday party, Do He did. I mean, the Kenny Burke story, uh, you know, it goes way back to actually when I was at Arista. Um, because as I was saying to you, Arista was a, as a part-time, kind of, you know, I wasn't a, an employee there as freelance. I was looking at doing other things and Morgan Khan, even though the, um, the, uh, the street scene magazine had folded, he still was able to keep the street wave and street sounds labels going. And it was Morgan actually came back to me and offered me, uh, opportunities to do some of his compilations. In fact, the first compilation I did was um, uh, the Jones Girls in 1986. And then the next one I did was Kenny Burke. And um, as part of the process of doing the compilation, I had to you know, write some sleeve notes. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder what, wonder what Kenny's up to now. Because, you know, he's pretty much my favourite artist. Well, he is my favourite artist. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm wondering what he's doing now. By then, you know, he'd recorded the three albums, the one on Dark Horse and the George Harrison's, you know, set up, uh, the two for RCA Records, which, of course, had, you know, Rising to the Top and also the, the track we're about to play. And, uh, you know, th th these, like, these are my favourite records. I mean, Never Stop Loving Me is actually my favourite record. If you were to say to me, what's your favourite record? That's it, which is why we're playing it. Um, but even back, as far back as 1986, I was like, well, what's happened to him? Where's he gone? You know, why can't we do some, he must do some more songs. And uh, again, it was all pre, you know, Facebook and internet and emails and all that kind of stuff. But I, I managed to track him down. And uh, when he found out I was working at Arista, it was like, oh, you know, maybe we can do something at Arista. I think, well, I'm not quite sure I can go that far, but what have you got? And he sent me some demos, which were brilliant. And they were on cassette. I remember playing them to Richard Cerning, you know, um, and, and he, he was, there was one in particular, he used to play his gigs off cassette and everyone used to go crazy. Oh, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? So it started me on this mission <clears throat> to, um, to record him. Hey, 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 truly you satisfy 
flown to Atlanta. Um, I stayed at his house. I mean, one of my stories there, by the way, it was actually my birthday while I was staying at his mum's house. And you know, Kenny Burke is one of the five stair steps. And on my birthday, Kenny Burke's mother cooked me a birthday cake and I had the five stair steps sing me happy birthday. Oh, my word. In their house. So that was quite something. Um, And then uh, later on, Kenny had started doing shows He'd gone and done the Baltic Soul Festival uh, in Germany. And I was thinking, oh, well, you know, I, mu- I must go to that. And um, my 50th birthday kind of looming, thinking he's not been in the UK for years. I mean, he'd been in the UK, I think, in, 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 the, in the mid to late 80s as part of one of those New York jazz explosion gigs that was at Hammersmith Odeon. But he hadn't been back since then. So I thought, I wonder if he'd, you know, he'd, he'd do a show with me at the Jazz Cafe. So I asked him, he said yes. So, yes, I thought, well, I'm going to promote this myself. So I booked the Jazz Cafe myself, um, put the tickets on sale. I thought, well, I'll, I'll sell the downstairs to help pay for pay for everything. I had a birthday sort of gathering upstairs. And, uh, yes, that's what I did for my 50th. And, even you know, he came and stayed with me at my house. And, um, you know, we've, we've been close ever since. So now Expansion um, is an entity. How did you get involved with the label? The label expansion records began about a year and a half before I was involved. And it started actually while you and I were working together at Arista. And during those times, I'd got to know Richard Serling very well. Richard, again, was someone I met through my journalistic side. He used to write for my Groove Weekly. He was a contributor to blues and soul as we still both are today i mean i left and came back but you know he still writes for blues and soul and we both wrote for the for the street scene magazine as well and you know he's based in the northwest but he would occasionally come to london and uh, every time he did we'd hook up and chat and talk about talk about records and he was telling me about expansion i was quite jealous you know so i'm thinking well what you're doing musically with expansion is that i wish say ian had done more of it at, at his motor city um it's a completely different label. I mean, with, with Ian and Motor City, he made records. You know, he, everything he put out on Motor City, he went and made. 
Whereas with expansion, it's like going and finding artists who've made their own records and offering a platform for those so they could come out. Um, so he was telling me about expansion. I was like, oh, you know, wow, you know, I wish I was involved. But he didn't really need my input at that time because it was him and John Anderson who were running it. And uh, the label was run through a label, a sub-label called PRT, who were also the distributor. PRT was a, like a distribution hub for a lot of independent labels. And they had uh, they did all the distribution, they did all the sales, um, and they had a label manager. And so, you know, th- they were set up in London through PRT, through those early releases. But then as PRT kind of started to wind down and Arista was, was, was out of my, you know, finished for me, um, my Motor City years were like looking, you know, how long do I want to do this? And um, Richard said to me, look, we, we don't have a distributor anymore. Uh, PRT have, have, have closed up. We're on, we're on our own. We need someone in London. So that he and John invited me in, literally as someone who could organize their pressings and then take them around the record shop selling them. So that's how it all started. I, I, so I agreed to um, be a part of it. One thing I remember saying to them, I said, I don't want to necessarily work for you, but I would, but I would work with you. Um, so if I'm going to do it, I'd like to be a, you know, a part of the company. So I ended up buying a third of the company. So that company was, was jointly owned, owned between me, John and Richard in those, in those early days. So on to your fifth track, Crystal Clear by Howard Hewitt, another uh, label artist. Tell us about this one. I picked this track because Howard was an artist I got to work with rather than just deal with a piece of product. I mean, early doors with expansion, we were dealing with masters. It was an existing master that wasn't even necessarily owned by the artist owned by the artist it might have been owned by a you know a catalog company so you know we would i was dealing with catalog rather than dealing directly with artists and uh suddenly in a position where even though howard hewitt's not signing to expansion or in the same way that gary taylor and leon ware didn't sign to expansion i was licensing their music directly from them and i was working with them in the setup and the promo and the you know the, the whole everything there is to do with putting that record out um, and, and, and of all the artists I think Howard's voice was the one that really you know they're all great artists but Howard's in terms of the artist with the voice is, is, was my favourite My heart begins to rain So excited Oh I anticipate My arms gently slipping around
signing talent i start from the point of do i like this record or not you know do i think this record will sell or not and it's all down to my personal taste um and if i don't like something you know most likely i'm not going to put it out and i remember even having this conversation with uh with uh, our distribution company at a time when we were starting to struggle to sell as many records as we used to, you know, there was a time where <coughs> there was a time where we put something out on expansion and it would it would do well, you know, and everyone was happy because there was more of an, a, an audience, there was a bigger audience for this kind of kind of music. But as as um, taste changed a little bit and people got you know a little bit older and new styles were coming in. Um, I didn't particularly want to go with the new, the new sounds. You know, I wanted to stick with the, the sound that I loved. And uh, the conversations I remember having with our distributor included Amy telling them that I only put out records that I liked. And they were like shocked by that. They thought there might be some more, they, might, they thought there might be more of a, a business model behind it. You know, more of a thinking of like, well, if I do this, I'm going to sell that. Rather than, no, I'm putting this out because I actually like this record. So that was their first thing. Um, and then the other uh, the other memory of, of those conversations were me asking them, what can I do or what can we do to sell more records? And their answer being put out different kinds of records, you know? And it's like, well, no, no. You know, everything I do from writing my columns in Blues and Souls or, or the two books I've written to my DJing, to my radio work, to the records I put out, 
I've got to love it. It's, it's what I love. Thinking about the 13-year-old lad who discovers song music and is listening to The Three Degrees, When Will I See You Again? What words of wisdom would you like to go back and tell him? Well, first of all, if you've got a passion for something, I'd say follow it, you know, because if you have a passion for soul music, which I had, and that's all I wanted to do, I was able to make it work. Mm -hmm. 